0: make a change for yourself tell others about your change and hopefully the message will spread
1: welcome to the food junkies podcast my name is dr Vera tarman and i am your host today speaking with dr andrew newberg about the neuroscience of prayer spirituality and meditation and why these tools might help in our treatment of food addiction recovery Dr. Andrew Newberg is a renowned neuroscientist and researcher at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He is a pioneer in the field of neurotheology, the study of how the brain and spirituality intersect. Dr. Newberg has dedicated his career to exploring the effects of religious and spiritual practices on the brain, using neuroimaging techniques to understand the neural basis of religious experiences. Dr. Newberg is co-author of several critically acclaimed books, including How God Changes the Brain and Neurotheology, How Science Can Enlighten Us About Spirituality. As a leading expert in his field, Dr. Newberg has been featured in in CNN or on CNN, National Geographic and the New York Times. Dr. Newberg's work has garnered international recognition and has provided valuable insights into the relationship between the brain, consciousness and religious experience. Welcome, Dr. Newberg.
2: Thank you for that introduction.
1: Okay, thank you. So we always like to start with a bit of a personal story.
2: My background is in two main areas. Uh, One is internal medicine, so that I do take care of sort of general medical issues. And in my role in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences, I have spent a lot of time talking to patients about the foods that they eat and so forth. Um, But my other main area, which is how I got into the whole neuro part, has actually been through the field of nuclear medicine, uh, which is a subspecialty of radiology. It involves imaging studies that where we inject some or administer some kind of radioactive material. And when we're doing brain imaging studies, usually it's following some part of the brain's function. So it could be blood flow, it could be metabolic activity, and of course, all the neurotransmitters, so serotonin and dopamine and so forth. And I've been very fortunate to be able to study a lot of very traditional issues, things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, depression, eating disorders, and so forth, as well as, as you mentioned in the introduction, the study of various mind-body practices, religious and spiritual practices and experiences. It, it's really been a wonderful opportunity to be able to explore so many aspects of how our brain works. And and I, I came into it really, I think, because I had always been fascinated. There, Going back to when I was a kid, I was really asking, to me, what I thought was a fundamental question, which is, what is the nature of reality? And it amplified all the way up till today, when we look at the world around us, and we see such divisiveness and anger and hatred and, and differences of perspective, what was always unclear about was we're all looking at the same world, how can we, why are there so many different religions and different political parties and different moral systems and so forth so i said it was very upsetting i was like and they all everybody thought they were right everybody thought everybody else was crazy and so i started to look at what's going on in the brain i thought that was a starting point that it's our brain that helps us to understand the world take in information and try to create our views our beliefs our perspectives on reality But as I explored the brain, and as wonderful as it is to be able to do science and to be able to look at how the brain operates, I began to realize that there are other aspects to these questions that are more philosophical and theological, and and so I started to look at different religious traditions, different theological perspectives, philosophy, all the different ways that we really think about ourselves and think about the world in addition to the ongoing exploration of science. And I just became very fortunate that when I was in uh, medical school, I connected with two wonderful mentors, one in the field of nuclear medicine and the the neuroimaging part of my life, and the other a psychiatrist and also an anthropologist who had been asking similar kinds of questions to me about uh, the nature of religious and spiritual practices and experiences. And so we all connected and eventually the proverbial light bulb went off. And I said, wait a minute, if we're studying the brain of people who are who have Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or depression, why can't we study the brain of people who are religious and spiritual? And and that was really what pushed the whole field of neurotheology, as, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, forward and really trying to explore all of this from a brain perspective, but also continuing to bring in these deep philosophical questions that really pertain to who we are as human beings. And that's always been the goal of my whole life and career is an exploration of that basic question.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is that so you're offering a really nice intersection between the profound and the profane. You're talking about the spiritual brain, but you're also an internist and about the profane, the basics of the body, internal medicine addictions and how really? it impacts us So let's talk about the profound first which i guess
2: <laughs> sounds good
1: yeah your spiritual understandings from my readings of you you did some major research on groups of people who are meditators do you want to explain a little bit about your research and how you came to some of your perceptions until you developed this concept of neurotheology
2: yeah, a little bit of what I was saying a few moments ago, we started to say, gee, we can do brain scans of people while they're doing these practices. And we started to do that research. And uh, it's it certainly has not been a straight line, which most science is not. That, But over the last maybe 20, 25 years, we've had an opportunity to be able to explore what's going on in the brain during practices that... Really, range across all, almost all traditions, or at least all the major ones. So we've done studies of Christian prayer, Muslim prayer, Jewish prayer, Buddhist and Hindu meditation, Sikhs in meditation, Brazilian mediums, people speaking in tongues. It's really been quite a a breadth of exploration and of course part of what i think has also been exciting is that this whole field has started to advance and expand and so there have been other people also who have been looking at practices like mindfulness and, and transcendental meditation and so forth so lots of other explorations of these kinds of practices and these and the experiences that are associated with them and typically what we do we use some kind of brain scan technology and one of the common ones that i've actually used in the field of nuclear medicine is something called SPECT imaging and this is just it's just one tool to be able to look at the brain but it's for us it's a pretty good one and part of the reason why it's a nice tool for studying spiritual experiences is that you don't have to be in the scanner when you're having that experience, or when you're doing the practice, if you uh, use something like functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, you have to be in the scanner to look at whatever it is that you're looking at. So if somebody's going to meditate or pray or something like that, sometimes they can do that in a scanner. Sometimes it's a particularly good place to do some prayer. But you have to be lying down, there's a lot of noise, it's not a a particularly conducive area, uh, place to be doing something spiritual. Whereas when we do spec imaging, um, the way it works is that we start by putting a little eye, IV catheter in the person's arm. And then we run this uh, IV line away from them so that um, they can be standing, they can be seated, they can even be moving around as long as they're not moving around too much. And then at some point, I go in and inject them with some radioactive material that helps us to look at the brain's activity they finish the practice and then they go into the scanner and it enables us to capture a snapshot of a particular moment in time when they're doing the prayer when they're doing the meditation and and so that's how we've done a lot of our studies I have done other types of imaging studies including MRI studies as well and I suppose the short answer in terms of what we have found to me is can that- it, it,
1: Let me just yeah, talk yeah, a little bit more about the process itself. So you inject sure. this contrast media or something, and then after they're, they've done their meditation, you can somehow map, is it like a one snapshot or multiple snapshots to see what's happened to them?
2: Yeah, so the, the downside is that it is a single snapshot. And so basically once you inject the radioactive tracer, it yeah. typically takes five or six minutes or whatever to get into the brain. And so whatever the person is doing for that five or six minutes, that's what you're capturing. So, for example, if somebody was listening to the podcast now and we were to inject and then they finished listening to the podcast and then they got a little something to eat maybe and then they took a walk down to their local hospital and got into the scanner, it would tell you what their brain was doing right now at the time of the injection. And in that regard, it's very nice. But to your point, this is why we've done some other studies where we've done MRI because since you are in the scanner while you're doing the practice, you can actually do an image of them now and then in five minutes and then in 10 minutes and 15. And of course, uh, many of these practices like meditation and prayer are very dynamic. And what you're doing in the first few minutes of the practice is very different than what you're doing if you continue to do it for 20 minutes or an hour or or many hours. And, And in fact, in our models of what we think is going on, there are many different things that start to change over time in terms of what's going on in the brain.
1: Okay. So th- I interrupted you. So tell us about some of the findings that you are you about to tell us.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think one of the main take home messages of, of all of the imaging that we've done is that there isn't just one part of the brain that becomes affected by these practices. I think for anyone who holds any kind of religious or spiritual feeling or has participated in some type of ceremony or ritual or, or meditation, they get that. And the reason why I say this is that there are so many different elements of these experiences or there, or there can be. I mean, for some people, meditation or prayer can be very cognitive. It can just be thinking about things or focusing their attention on something. Sometimes it can be cognitive in the sense that it might give them some knowledge or insight into uh, solving a problem in, in some way. For other people, practices like prayer could be incredibly emotional, intense feelings of love, compassion, awe, whatever it is that they feel emotionally. It can lead people to various behaviors and they can be charity, altruism, it could be anger, it could be violence, but whatever it is, there there could be behavioral changes, and ultimately it affects the person's whole belief system, uh, what they think about the world. So, to me, uh, especially in somebody in the world of integrative medicine, we really recognize the whole person, which is not just the biological part of who we are, but the yeah. the psychological, social, and spiritual part, and all of those are really encompassed by religious and spiritual practices, and that can include the effects of these practices on our social well-being, the community that we participate in with, the biological effects, as we've seen with our brain scans, the psychological effects, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the impact on depression, on substance abuse, and so forth, as well as the spiritual part. So it really does cut across many different aspects of who we are. And one last thing to say is that since the since the brain is intimately connected to the body these are experiences and practices that affect us really throughout our entire being and we it's not just something that you think about in your head but it is something that you feel maybe you feel your heart pounding or you feel your respirations or you feel energy in your body and and so to me it makes a lot of sense to say that there are many different parts of the brain that become involved and of course then from there so we've created this whole model of the different areas of the brain that become involved. And from there, we can talk about a specific practice, what people experience, and then that's, what what do we see?
1: That's what I was going to ask you about. So specific practices can trigger off different parts of the brain and a, a different experience then. Yes?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Even just. Yeah, just starting from the basics. If when we did some or two of our first studies, one of them was with a group of Buddhist meditators, and the other was with a group of Franciscan nuns yes, doing a kind one. of Christian prayer. Yeah, and and right off the bat, one distinction between them is that the Buddhists, for us, were doing. There's a lot of different practices, obviously, in both traditions. But what we were studying uh, in the Buddhist meditators. Was a visualization kind of technique? They would Im, uh, imagine in their mind and in their visual s- system, so to speak, a something a, a sacred object, a sacred vision that they would focus on. Right away, they're activating the visual areas of the brain because they're they're focusing on something that's visual. When you look at the the nuns who are doing prayer, they are focusing on an actual prayer or a phrase out of the Bible. So this is verbal. And so we see activations going on in the language areas in contrast to the visual areas of the brain. However, in both circumstances, they are concentrating on their practice. They're focusing their attention on the visual, on the verbal. Uh, An important area in that regard of the brain is the frontal lobe. And so our frontal lobes right behind our forehead, become active whenever we concentrate on anything. And in the cases of these practices where you concentrate on a task like a visual object or a, or a prayer, then your frontal lobe becomes activated. But then ultimately, they also both experience a sense of oneness or connectedness. In the case of the Buddhist, it's a oneness with the universe, it's a oneness with some kind of universal consciousness. Yeah. With the nuns, it's a connection with God and when we have people have these kinds of experiences what we tend to see is actually a decrease of activity in an area of the brain the back of the brain called the parietal lobe which basically takes our sensory information and helps us to create our sensory sense of self by when those areas turn on we have a sense of ourself and when those areas shut down, we lose that sense of self and we lose the boundary between ourself and the other, whatever the other may be. Uh, and that we think is associated with that sense of, of oneness or connectedness. It breaks down the barrier between ourself and the other, and we can feel connected to other members of our community to the universe to god whatever it is that particular person is feeling and those are just some examples There are many different parts of the brain as i mentioned can become affected depending on the circumstances and many different neurotransmitters can become affected and and that leads more specifically to some of the psychological issues why don't
1: you elaborate a little bit on that like one particular type of meditative practice or religious practice and how that might affect
2: yeah uh, again we've been trying to develop this very large model and it is based in some to some extent about how we understand different neurotransmitters work but also on some of the research that's been done looking at the effects of different molecules and substances and drugs like psychedelics and so forth that we know go to certain receptors and so as an example there have been a couple of studies including some of our own that have shown that the brain becomes more sensitive to the effects of both serotonin and dopamine in the brain. And we did a study of a, uh, a Christian-based retreat based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, where when people went to this retreat for about a week, it made their brain more sensitive to the effects of dopamine and serotonin by doing prayer. It was a very immersive, intense meditation, reflection, a lot of mostly in solitude and quiet and it changed the way their brain operated. And of course, both the serotonin and dopamine areas are very important in psychological issues and problems. We know that depression tends to be associated with decreases in serotonin, and we give drugs to enhance the serotonin system, the antidepressants, many of them affect the serotonin system. And we also know that many of the psychedelics affect the serotonin system, like psilocybin, LSD, and so forth. So the fact that a a prayer practice, a, a meditation and prayer program affects the serotonin system them, that's one very interesting, but also makes a lot of sense in the context of how it may affect feelings of depression, feelings of anxiety, and so forth, because we these are the areas that seem to be involved in that.
1: And the concept of spiritual experiences, like when people actually say they have a spiritual experience and feel uplifted out of the norm of right. normal experience, and even potentially even hallucinations of some sort, yes?
2: Oh, absolutely. And to put this in the context of neurotheology as, yeah. as a field, which to me, very simplistically speaking, is about the relationship between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves, I often talk about it as being a big jigsaw puzzle. And there are a lot of different pieces to that puzzle, the disorders that affect serotonin, and dopamine. In fact, there's been some very interesting studies looking at uh, how Parkinson's disease, which results in a decrease of dopamine, yes. winds up affecting a person's religious and spiritual beliefs far more than other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's that don't specifically affect the dopamine area.
1: Please say how that's very interesting.
2: Yeah, basically when Parkinson's disease affects people and specifically when it it seems to actually have a bit of a laterality effect at least the one study that I saw which was not my own but found that if it affects one side of the brain versus the other then people yeah. tend to be less become less religious based on various questionnaires and, and uh-huh. uh, markers of that. And of course, when people have depression, that can affect their religious and spiritual beliefs. And depression itself is also associated with alterations in serotonin. And on the other hand, the other, another piece of that puzzle that we mentioned briefly are the psychedelics, which have different kinds of different ones have different effects but many of them do affect the serotonin system and and when you take that kind of a psychedelic you can have a whole variety of different religious and spiritual experiences in fact some of the the original research uh, that came out about 10 15 years ago showed that that when people had psychedelic experiences they rated them as being highly spiritual and in fact my colleagues and I looked at a large survey of people's spiritual experiences and found that those under the uh, influence of a psychedelic were very similar to the the more quote-unquote naturally occurring spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. So it raises all kinds of questions about what is the nature of these experiences and the biology and and how real they are. We can talk about all of that, but it does have implications psychologically as well. And, And certainly there's a lot of work now being done looking at the potential for psychedelics as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder for depression and so forth and obviously we'll have to see where the research goes and and see what the data shows us but um but again there's a lot of very interesting interconnected kind of research that is helping us to put together a broader picture as to how these different neurotransmitters ultimately are associated with our psyche but also our our spirituality
1: You mentioned dopamine. You've been talking about serotonin, but dopamine. So dopamine is the neurochemical that we focus on a lot in addiction. It's right. over overextension or downregulation of dopamine receptors and tolerance, et cetera, et cetera. When you mentioned that uh, Parkinson's, there was a sort of flattening of the spiritual experience. Yes. Can make mm-hmm. that assumption then that dopamine, there's not just serotonin, but there's a role of dopamine in, in uh, the, a religious experience as well? Is that- uh,
2: yes, exactly, and and there was one study that showed that that a, a very intense meditation practice based on uh, yoga meditation um, was associated. This was also a nuclear medicine study, not one of mine, but that showed a release of dopamine associated with that practice. So again, we're starting to see because people turn to meditation and prayer as a way of helping with addictions with depression, with anxiety, with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh So I think it makes a lot of sense that you're going to be having an effect ultimately on, on a number of these uh, on a number of these systems i think there's a lot of reciprocal interactions the disease can cause a problem maybe with these systems maybe practices like meditation and prayer can augment those systems uh-huh. in some way or help those systems in some way yeah. and, and and in fact a lot of people have looked at various approaches like meditation or even prayer to help people and certainly some of the most well known approaches to dealing with addictions like alcoholism, for example, invoke a higher power like with Alcoholics Anonymous and so forth. So there's a lot of spiritual elements and, and even psychotherapeutic interventions that have a variety of of religious or spiritual content can be extremely helpful for people, especially and obviously, of course, if they have some background in their own life that is religious or spiritual, and that I don't know if this is the best time to make this point, but it is a very important point, that especially when you're talking about therapeutically, how all this information helps us, it's very, it's very contextual. I, I did a study that showed that the rosary reduces anxiety, but I wouldn't go to a Jewish person and say, you should do the rosary or I wouldn't go to an atheist and say, you should do the rosary, because right. here, here's the data that shows that it reduces anxiety. It reduces anxiety because for the people who do the rosary, for the Catholics who do the rosary, it can be very meaningful for them. But for somebody who is an atheist then you need to find uh, another secularly oriented approach. And that could be something that has to do with nature or creativity or humanism or something. There's always approaches that have spiritual-like elements to them that everybody can potentially participate in. It's a matter of finding the ones that work right and and are consistent with that particular person's belief system.
1: I wanna chase the one that you mentioned earlier because we're interested in dopamine and addiction. So the person is basically chasing dopamine. They've had a flattened response and so now they need the enhanced response through drugs and alcohol but you mentioned there was a yoga technique what was that yoga technique how do you Uh, pick your own natural dopamine spike as it were
2: it's one study and these were expert meditators again these are it's a great question that you're posing part of the answer is I I don't know exactly what to tell people other than this is a a meditation called yoga nidra and and basically as a meditation practice it's something that people could look to obviously a, a lot of people have looked towards practices like mindfulness transcendental meditation we've done some studies on another practice called kirtan kriya meditation which is a mantra based practice but uh, yoga programs and so forth. And one of the things that's interesting, and, and I hope I'm not digressing too much from your question, but I think one of the things, and also ties into my last statement, to the, the answer to the last question, yeah. is that people need to find something that resonates with them. If you just do a practice because you were told to do it and you're just sort of going through the motions, it's will it be helpful? I guess a little bit, but the more is something that you fully embrace and that you can really get into, then that tends to be the kinds of practices. So so part of the answer to your question is it, it's not so much a particular practice, which is going to be the best at doing it, but it's finding the practice that works right for that particular person. And so if somebody really loves doing the rosary or really does, loves doing mindfulness or really loves Taking hikes in the woods and being connected to nature—all of them can potentially be effect at modifying our brain, um, making our brain, you know, more sensitive to dopamine and uh, and serotonin, and, and in that regard, alleviating hopefully some of the, the the issues and the symptoms that people people face. That would be those are the kinds of approaches to take. But again, no one has even done the kind of definitive study where they say, okay, we have somebody who's got an addiction, and uh, let's scan their brain now. To look at the dopamine areas let's give them some meditation program or something like that let's see if their addiction gets better let's see if their dopamine levels you know change we we, no one's really connected all those dots just yet Um, and certainly clinically we know that these practices can work for people in the right context um but exactly how and in what way we don't fully know.
1: Okay, good. Now, when I've talked about this stuff with people, I've often used the concept of left brain and right brain. I don't, is that something that you use at all? The idea that the right brain is is in a sense, the more spiritual opened area versus the left, which is much more cognitive based. Do you use that kind of distinction
2: at all? I do because I think it's helpful. Sometimes the real staunch neuroscientists poo that a little bit these days. I think there's certainly everything with the brain is much more complicated than we ever think it is, and as long as people realize that you we can talk about it that way, I do think that the right side, as a general statement, tends to be a little bit more of the spiritual side, tends to be a little bit more of the the creative side. It, It doesn't operate. By itself to do that. It actually is connected to the left side to do that. And yeah. so you ultimately need really both sides, but I do think they probably contribute a little differently to how we begin to put our sort of perspectives on reality together. And for example, just as the example, if you were to say, prayer, let, let's do a prayer practice, you need your left side of the brain, which is where you know most people's language centers are, to be able to say the prayer, to be able to reflect on the prayer. But then as you start to develop your emotional responses and the feelings of oneness and connectedness, now you're maybe bringing in the right side of the brain a little bit and maybe you know there's language areas on the right side of the brain that are not about not so much about the actual like grammar and syntax of what's going on mm-hmm. but the meaning of it and how it has relevance in your life so so and then they go back and forth and so i think that there's clearly you know while i think it's reasonable to talk about the left and the right side and to differentiate their roles to some degree really is important to think about the brain and, and as a kind of a greater whole. And in fact, what's interesting also is that a lot of the, the neuroscience research today has gotten away even from talking about specific areas of the brain, like the frontal lobe and the amygdala. And now they talk more about networks. Now, again, I, I still think that the structures have something, they still have some specific roles within that network. But now they talk about the reward system. They talk about the attention system. They talk about the salience network. And so for the default mode network, we can talk about how all of these different parts of the brain are interconnected. But to be honest, in, in one of the early papers that we did, even going back to the 1990s, we almost always took a kind of network approach. We talked about the frontal lobes and the parietal lobes and the amygdala of the limbic system and how they all operate together, even though they have their own roles within that to all operate together when people are doing a practice like meditation or prayer or having some kind of profound spiritual experience.
1: So the definition of neurotheology, is there more to say about that? The concept of or applied neurotheology, like how we can use this knowledge towards mental health and and, uh physical health
2: yeah absolutely yeah the the simple definition uh, the elevator definition is it's the study of the relationship between our brain and our spiritual or religious selves I like to add a few things to that actually so I appreciate your question that first of all I always like it to be very clear that it is a, a two-way street, as I like to say. It is not just science looking at religion, it is not religion looking at science, but it's the two of them really looking at each other to help us understand who we are as human beings. And in that regard, I think it does have some very important practical implications, both in terms of our religious and spiritual beliefs, as, as well as just the who we are and who how do we think about ourselves as people. So that's important. And then I think the other main thing that I usually like to say is that the neuro and the theology sides both need to be very broadly. So the neuro side is neuroimaging and neuroscience, but it can also be the study of neurological disorders. It can be psychological analyses. It can be anthropology. How did the brain develop and so forth? And then on the other side, on the theology side, while theology is its own specific approach to analyzing a a religious tradition, it includes religious practices experiences rituals belief systems and all the different ways in which we engage that spiritual part of ourselves it works as a concept and also to to your specific question about the applied part of it what i also like part of why i love it as a field is that i think the scholarship in it can range from the very esoteric. So we can still have conversations about epistemology and philosophy and theology on one end. But there are some very practical implications on the other end, which really does delve into the discussions about substance abuse and psychology and how do we treat people with depression, addiction, PTSD? How do we understand what the brain is doing during those when people have these issues? And how do we help people to recover from them. And and then there's a lot of stuff in the middle too. There's just, so what is consciousness and where does consciousness fit into all of this? And what about free will and you know so there's a lot of wonderful questions to be able to address and part of what I think neurotheology does is it provides us a perspective that we never had before. It allows us to not just have the kind of philosophical or purely psychological depending on what you're looking at uh, perspective, but it brings in all these other perspectives as well. So it gives us new ways of thinking about these very important questions.
0: Hey, Food Junkies listeners, we're just going to take a quick break here to share with you something our team thinks could help benefit your recovery with food, body, or self. Thank you again for listening. In honor of the giving holiday season, Sweet Sobriety wanted to share our upcoming free 12-week Foundations module workshop starting Fridays, January 5th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, hosted by Molly Payne Each session will be an hour and a half and you will get professional coaching around all the module topics, including understanding ultra-processed food addiction and mindful eating, abstinence and withdrawal, Craving and Recovery Management, Cross Addiction, Hope and Resilience, Distress Intolerance, Addressing Thoughts and Feelings, Stress Management, Emotional Eating, Building Self-Compassion, Moving Toward Body Neutrality, and Spirituality. There are multiple videos, exercise, downloads, and personal writing reflections for each module. We walk you through the topics in the order they usually show up when we are treating food addiction with private clients we work with we jam-packed every module with the most current evidence-based best practices and the latest scientific information we have found in the field of food addiction and eating disorders. This workshop will be free of charge to anyone who purchases or has purchased our foundation's modules, which are based on our treatment audit paper published in Frontiers in Psychiatry. When you purchase the modules for $200 US, going up to $300 in the new year, you will have automatic access to them and will receive a Zoom link in January inviting you to our free workshop. If you miss the group or are working at that time, we will be recording them so you'll have access to them forever. This workshop includes lifetime access to the Foundations modules, all future updates and lifetime access to the workshop recordings for members who purchase the modules. Also, we wanted to let you know that we have now posted the Saturday speakers from our Sweet Sobriety meetup for anyone who was unable to attend the event. These can be found on www.sweetsobriety.ca under courses and are $10 for each individual speaker or $30 for the whole package of five speakers of the day. These speakers are Sandra Elia, Dr. Evelyn Roy, Sophie Rowland, Dr. Vera Tarman, and Dr. Amy Reichelt. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. If you have enjoyed this episode, please let us know. We love to hear from you. Kindly leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. We love getting feedback from our listeners.
1: Okay, good. So you mentioned that there's a a range and we can look at the practical or what I would call the profane. So let's look at that. You mentioned that various religious practices can impact on health. And let's specifically look at mental health. And if you can, addiction, eating disorders, you mentioned that you talked about eating disorders. Uh, So how can they, how can knowledge about uh, the neurotheology help us in those areas?
2: I think part of what we start with is how religious or spiritual aspects, topics, elements, whatever, have been used. And we talked a little bit about one of them, like through Alcoholics Anonymous, where, you know, the invocation of a higher power is a very critical element. How does
1: that work? You're right. People say in order to be truly successful using the AA program, you have to adopt a sense of a higher power. Why? Can you explain that to us?
2: (laughs) So that's where I think the neurotheological scholarship starts to come in, because we don't fully know. We don't know whether or not it's shifting addictions from one thing to another. But the, the thing that we shift to is a more positive, beneficial way of looking at the world. We don't know if that by embracing something that is a higher power, a more religious or or more spiritual feeling enables us to settle down our system, our dopamine areas, our serotonin areas, or enhance them in some way. So we don't fully know. And that to me is where I think a lot of this research can ultimately go because perhaps maybe the most important Answer to your question is whether this type of research, especially when you bring in the brain piece, can help us to figure out what are the kinds of approaches that might be most effective for certain circumstances. You're right. That is
1: the key question. Yeah,
2: because we don't have it. if if you come in with alcoholism or if you come in with an eating uh, addiction or something like that. I, don't ha- I can tell you that there are research studies that have shown that mindfulness helps you and transcendental meditation can help you. And Alcoholics Anonymous is, is obviously been very successful for lots of people, but they're also not, none of them are successful for everyone. And the question is, why not? And, yeah. and what happens? And that's where we don't really have an answer, but where I think a, a, a study like neurotheology might be helpful. Because what if we found out that for the people where the higher power really works for them, let, let's just stick with that example, for Alcoholics Anonymous, maybe those are the people who have the highest levels of dopamine. So now if you have somebody who doesn't have a high level of dopamine, but they're an alcoholic, they're suffering from alcoholism, maybe they need to do a different kind of approach. Maybe they need mindfulness. Maybe they need psychotherapy. Maybe they need medical treatment. They, they need some type of medication or something like that, uh, or or some combination. And so I, I think that's to me is is where I'm hoping to be able to do some future research where we really look at all the different kinds of practices that are out there, all the different approaches that are out there and see how people very rarely are they matched up on head to head. And that's not to mean that one is better or worse than the other, at least from any kind of truly ground of being a philosophical perspective, but some of them might be better for helping people deal with addictions or substance abuse or eating disorders. Is there something
1: that we do know that that does work? Do you have something, I know you're saying that it's an area of an inquiry that begs for research, but what do we already know so far?
2: We do know clinically that when people, first of all, taking a big step back, we know that people who are religious or spiritual, you know, when you analyze people on a population basis, tend to have lower rates of substance abuse. And being a religious or spiritual person tends to be associated with better overall mental health, uh, lower rates of depression, lower rates of suicide, lower rates of substance use and abuse. So there does seem to be a relationship with that. Now, again, what's the basis for that? Is that just because people are praying, does it have to do with the fact that most religious traditions tell us not to drink, not to smoke, not to be right. promiscuous and so forth? So my guess is that there's some combination of factors that are both direct and indirect, so to speak, that have an impact on that. Now, in fact, I just... Just literally finished today writing up a chapter on meaning and purpose, which has also been shown to help people in terms of mental health and substance use and things like that. And so, when people have a higher sense of meaning and purpose in their life, they tend to have, again, lower rates of depression, anxiety, lower rates of suicide, and so forth. And and of course, religious and spiritual beliefs are very good at contributing to a sense of meaning and purpose in, in terms of providing that for people. So whether or not, you know, exactly which elements are the active ingredients, so to speak, yeah. we don't know.
1: But um, I, in the addiction world, we have a phrase that, that you've probably heard, which is the opposite of addiction is connection. And yeah. I've always translated that as the opposite of addiction, which is a dopamine impairment is connection, which is basically a re a rebalancing of serotonin, so that it's like a yin yang that in, in natural world, we have dopamine, and we have serotonin, and there's an appropriate balance of that. But addiction throws that balance off and that a spiritual practice would regulate the dopamine while enhancing the serotonin does that make sense to you
2: yeah absolutely absolutely i think very very much and i i think again whether or not certain types of practices are going to do that better or worse. As far as I know, that once uh, we did our study on the spiritual retreat program, looking at dopamine and serotonin, there's the one study of that yoga uh, practice. And that's about it. As far as and and then maybe there's the Parkinson's studies. It's not exactly the same thing. So there's very little really at the moment. That's the exciting part of neurotheology is that we have a lot to do. And and hopefully a lot of future studies will be able to look at that and look at that association uh, more actively. But yeah, I think your idea, your hypothesis makes a lot of sense. Whether or not other neurotransmitters, when you talk about connection, other neurotransmitter that doesn't really get talked a lot about in terms of addictions per se is oxytocin which is known to be a very powerful neurotransmitter for helping people make connections and and especially feel connected to a per, other people or to a family or to children or whatever so yeah i think that that the ability to look at that overall relationship i think will be very helpful and the more we can do that we can test the hypothesis and see how well it works. And I know we had done some studies that looked at smoking behaviors a number of years ago, and it also looked at the opiate receptors, which are obviously very involved in addiction. And there was some changes in the opiate receptors in people who were smokers who, there's some smokers who can quit and stop, and then there's other smokers who never can quit. And, and we were starting to do some brain imaging studies of that and, and finding a, a relationship between that receptor system. So I, my guess is it's going to be pretty complex, exactly what's modulating what and in what to what degree, whether it's ultimately the dopamine itself or dopamine's modulation of opiates or vice versa. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's a lot for us to learn.
1: Okay. So let's look at the internist side of you. So what about uh, how can foods... How can what we do to our bodies, can that affect our spiritual outlook? We eat uh, junk food, processed food. What does that do to us from this neurotheological perspective?
2: Actually, the relationship between food and and religion and spirituality is, is really pretty impressive. First of all, many religious traditions have specific doctrines and and approaches to to managing food. And whether it's a Jewish person who's kosher, whether it's a Hindu who's vegetarian. So there's a strong, whether you're not allowed to eat meat on Fridays or whatever. And so there's a lot of approaches to using food in certain ways. Food can be very symbolic, having a lot of meaning, thinking about like in, in the Christian tradition, taking communion, that you're not just... It's not just wine and a wafer, but the blood and body of Christ. There's a lot of meaning that's wrapped up in food. And of course, I think that also is one of the things that really gets altered when you're looking at people who have addictions. So I think that's part of the process that you we have to think, think there
1: about. Do you think there could be a physiological impact on the neurotheological perspective?
2: I would think so very much. We did a study, this is a little tangential, but we did a study of visual symbols that have religious meaning and absolutely that there's that effect. Now to your question about the the junk food, part of what we know, I'm in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences, and so part of what has certainly been shown with regard to these kinds of highly processed foods is that they are very pro-inflammatory. And so you set off all these cytokines in the body. And whenever any of us have inflammation, whenever we have a cold or COVID or whatever, it, it may, it depresses our system. It depresses our brain's functions. It, it depresses us emotionally. And unfortunately, there's this odd, I don't know if odds are quite the right word, but odd reciprocal interaction that a lot of times when we're depressed or we feel anxious, we have a tendency to go to that junk food because the immediate release of the sugar and the impact on dopamine makes us feel good for that moment. But the long-term consequences are that, that it does. It leads to inflammation in the body, inflammation in the brain. And that ultimately persists as increases in depression, anxiety, and stress and so forth. So again, here's where the opportunity to maybe come in and think a little bit about the the impact of how you can both think about the foods to to help you to engage religious or spiritual practices, which is part of the thing that people do, including things like fasting, as well as the other way around, how can you turn to religious or spiritual beliefs or practices as a way of helping you to not have to turn to the junk foods to help you with that sense of of meaning and purpose and and giving you that more positive feeling. So I think that there's definitely that relationship that we can turn to and And but that's why I think ultimately the, the physiological effects that we see is, at least with most of the junk food is the inflammatory process. Yeah. At least that seems to be the main issue.
1: Now, now, you mentioned, fasting and spiritual practices are often connected. So do, do right. you know anything about that from a neurophysiological right. thing, promote a spiritual experience, which is what some people claim.
2: Yeah. and and I think what it's doing to get a little bit more technical, what what hap- what we have observed in a lot of religious and spiritual experiences, is not so much increased activity in the brain, but actually relatively decreased. I mentioned earlier on the decrease in the parietal lobe. We also think that when you have that sense of surrender, which is also incidentally part of the 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 Alcoholics Anonymous of surrendering oneself to this process, the frontal lobe activity actually decreases. I think, and again, this has not been fully studied yet, but I, I think that when you When you fast, you are altering the physiology of the brain. You're basically restricting glucose intake which is the brain's primary source of energy and so these areas are gently trending down in terms of overall activity and so it may it may get them to a lower to lower their threshold for having these kinds of experiences
1: release release a bit of that parietal low connection but then also people say that the ketones which eventually take over bring back a sense of energy and something else
2: There's probably some comp if you get into a ketosis, then that may be something where it provides a slightly different source of energy. And there have been some interesting studies looking at people with seizure disorders. And and I think they've also looked at it in autism that they're trying to get into a little bit more of a natural ketotic state might be helpful for people. So yeah, I think there's still a bit of the let's wait and see how all of these different elements come together. But there have been some studies. Yeah, lots of
1: interesting questions. What about the person who says, I'm not interested in spirituality. I'm not a spiritual person. What happens to that person in terms of their mood and mental health state and physical
2: state? I think, first of all, what people, when we talk about I mentioned some studies that have looked at the populations of people and people who are religious tend to have better mental health but of course that doesn't mean that people who there's lots of people who are very religious who are very depressed and certainly there's plenty of religious people who have addictions and there's plenty of atheists who are (laughs) very well-rounded and have very few psychological issues to deal with so that's part of it and we're talking about populations there's some beneficial effects some ability to protect us some protective effect but but it's certainly not universal what I usually talk to people about who come with that perspective of I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic, what's in this for me? Usually my response is, look, there's still things that have meaning to you. There are still things that right. make you yeah. feel connected. You talked about the connection part. So there's still many ways of being connected to something greater than the self, which doesn't necessarily have to be a supernatural thing. It could be connected to all of humanity. It could be connected to the universe. So many, um, I was always a big fan of Carl Sagan growing up and very frequently as an astronomer talking about, we're made of the stuff of stars and we're connected. All of us are interconnected uh-huh. as this sort of web of life on earth. There are ways of taking walks in nature, be, uh, engaging the creative side of who you are through music, through through art, and so forth. And so I think there's a lot of different ways that someone who is an atheist can still engage that, that spiritual, quote-unquote, spiritual side of themselves without necessarily having to adhere to some doctrinal perspective or okay. some some specific belief system, but again, even if you're an atheist, you still have a belief system. You have, you you it might be about humanism, it might be something political, a moral, whatever it is that right. you feel strongly about. That if you engage those parts of yourself, that most likely as long, again, as I mentioned earlier, as long as it's something that you really do buy into and believe in strongly, then it is something that likely will have a a very comparable kind of effect as someone who is religious or spiritual. I, I think because religious and spiritual beliefs so often are extremely intense and strong that arguably they might deliver ultimately a, a greater effect for those individuals but that doesn't mean that you know it, that if you're an atheist that you have no options out there i think you have a lot of them
1: now as you're still working as an internist is that correct
2: Ah, uh, yes mm-hmm.
1: do, you, do you use any of your um knowledge about this in your day-to-day practice somehow do you introduce yeah them all in the, the time um yeah. we
2: we have a lot of patients who come to our center who have different chronic issues and illnesses some of them are psychological um we do have people with addictions we have people who have suffered from head injuries we have people who have chronic inflammatory conditions like irritable bowel or or other even autoimmune diseases and, and the model that we use in integrative medicine is, we refer to it as the four-dimensional model of the person. And so that's the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And so when I'm across the table from that individual and how are we going to help you manage this, I try to address each one of those elements. So I, I'll talk about the biological. Are there do they need to be on an antidepressant? Maybe they do. Maybe that's an important part of what they need to do. What about the psychological? Are there certain? Uh, do they need psychotherapy? Do they need to work through certain issues and problems? Um, are there various mind-body practices that might be useful for them that can help them to deal with more effectively with certain traumas uh, that they that they have had to deal with in their lives. Are they socially connected? Do they have spouse, family, congregation, a spiritual group, other groups that they're connected to that are important for them and from which they derive a lot of support? And then what is their religious and spiritual belief system? Do they have one? Are they doing practices like meditation or prayer? Could we, is there something that we could recommend that they might really enjoy? It becomes part of that system. And yeah, we really do. And and I apologize, I forgot to mention because we've been talking about food so much, but on the biological side, we talk a lot about diet and nutrition and some of the things about not really making sure that they avoid highly processed foods with a lot of sugar. We try to get people to more plant-based, more protein-based diets that are anti-inflammatory. And so if you attack people in terms of the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual, and multi-prong approach, I think that's the best way of being the most effective. But but then part of that is is how does the person really put that whole program together for them? And, and that's always the challenge that we have as the, so, the, the physicians helping them.
1: There's only a couple more minutes. I did want to ask you something about the psychedelics. You mentioned a little bit about the psychedelics. So if you want to elaborate a little bit more
2: sure again it's it's a piece of the neurotheological puzzle i think it's fascinating i haven't particularly done personally i have not done research on it uh, although we did a large survey of people's spiritual experiences got a couple thousand descriptions of different spiritual mm. experiences and when we looked at the psychedelic the ones that were under the influence of a psychedelic they were extremely comparable and and every bit as intense. So that's interesting and important. We also know that these psychedelics go to certain receptors. So that gives us information about the effects of those receptors on these kinds of experiences. And of course, now there's a very big push in a number of of institutions and companies and so forth that are looking at the use of psychedelics from a a very psychological therapy kind of perspective. And some of the data that I've seen looks very promising. Obviously, we'll have to see. There's always the concern about its cross interaction with addictions and things like that. And maybe the most important thing, because this is true, it's been uh, something that's been fluttering through a lot of what we've been talking about, is context. And I would never recommend that somebody who's depressed, oh, we'll go to a party and take some mushroom and and see what kind of experience you have, and that's going to help you. But if it's done in the appropriate care with somebody who understands it, who can guide people properly, who has psychotherapeutic background, that can, when things come up, they can work through that. I think at least in that context, you have a much higher likelihood of it working to the benefit of the individual. But I think the the data just still isn't quite there yet, but it's potentially very exciting.
1: Okay, thank you. All right, so we have a final question, and thank you so much for all of your uh, answers. Our final question, it's a signature question. If you could tell a younger version of yourself about the spiritual, neuro-theological perspective, what would it be? I think...
2: It would probably be to, to hang in there. This, uh, this whole pursuit that I have been through throughout my whole life at, at times has given me great angst and uh, has been certainly a struggle in many ways. It's certainly been a struggle in many ways. But for me, I think being able to be persistent and to be being able to continue to look in as balanced as a way as possible, to be genuine and authentic and, and to hang in there. I guess it would have been nice to know at the beginning that hanging in there would hopefully work out okay and but part of that hanging in there is there's still a long way to go and uh there's still so much but that's part of what's fun and not to be trite but it's the journey not the destination i think and for me i think that's very much true i've learned so much along the way i've gotten to little individual destinations here and there that we've talked about different discoveries but there's a lot of excitement to go
1: Okay, I I have a a bonus question. I have to ask you this question. In the work that you've done, has any of it made you believe that God must exist? That somehow the (laughs) fact that we have receptors that are open to this experience, that there must be something out there, or that it could all just be uh, neurological?
2: That is the $100,000 question. I have to try to ask you that question. (laughs) For me, it is still an open question, personally, and uh, that's part of what my life is all about, which is trying to find the answer to that, Uh which I've always told everyone that if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let you know. But that being said, I, I think the important answer to the question is that we have to be careful about how we get to the answer to that question. And I'll I'll tell one of my favorite stories, which is that we talked about the Franciscan nuns who came in for our study. So when I showed the scan to the nun, she was, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Newberg. This really proves that my prayer works. It affects me. It's how I connect to God. Thank you so much. And I said, you're welcome. And off she went. She was very happy about things. And then when we published the paper, I got a call from the head of our local atheist society Who called me up and I thought, oh, this is, I was worried about how this was gonna go. And he said, Dr. Newberg, I just wanted to thank you so much for showing that religion and spirituality is nothing more than a function of our brain. And I said, You're welcome. And off he went. And he was very happy. And some somewhere the yin and the yang that you mentioned before of making an atheist and a deeply religious person happy at the same time with the same data was intriguing to me. And but I think it, it underscores the important point, which is that on one hand, both perspectives are right, but they're also both incorrect in the sense that to me, what the scan study showed is what happens in her brain when she has that experience. But the larger sort of epistemological question about the nature of reality, that fundamental question. Yeah. That I started with back when I was a kid, still working on that. And that is, I try to be very careful about where we go and how we conclude based on the information and the data. But but I think it's exciting to have scientific data to bring to bear on these questions. It's not just a philosophical question anymore. It's not just a theological debate, but there's a scientific piece to it as well. Uh, it doesn't negate those other perspectives, but it just adds to it. And and I guess I hope that that science by itself, I think, has its limitations. Religious and spiritual ideas by themselves have their limitations. I think that if we're ever going to find the answer to the questions, I think we need to find something that brings those two together. And, and that's why I do neurotheology.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Newberg, for your curiosity, your enthusiasm, and your questions, and your research. I really appreciate this hour that we spent together. Thank you.
2: Well, my pleasure. Thank you.